Just bow our heads with me once more as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are distracted and we are ignorant. We're foolish. And we don't know you apart from your word, and yet we are also arrogant, and we think we do know you apart from your word. We assume so often that we know. And so we pray now, would you humble us to receive your word implanted, which is able to save our souls. Help us to listen. Help us to hear. Help us to rejoice at what you tell us about your message of the forgiveness of sins and the blood and righteousness of Jesus and how we ought to respond to that, how that ought to change us and how you designed for that message to change the world. Arrest our attention now, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Some of the loudest buzzwords in the global West today have to do with equality or inequality. Equal rights, equal pay for equal work, equal opportunity, inequality of income distribution. These phrases feel really modern to us, and we like to think of ourselves as kind of en vogue for being concerned with them. They certainly come with their own challenges. May or may not surprise us, though, to find that the Bible displays a certain concern for equality in itself. But in the Bible, not every kind of equality is equally important. The most important equality is how we get access to right standing before God and good standing among His new community. Certainly not regardless of creed, but definitely regardless of color, country, culture, and class. Some might say that the question raised here as we open our Bibles to Acts 11, is whether Jesus is an equal opportunity Savior. Will Jesus really save anyone of any color from any country, culture, or class on the same basis, on equal footing, as long as their creed becomes Jesus is Lord of all? In some ways, though, the question raised in our text, Acts 11 this morning, is more about Christians than about Christ. It almost sounds heretical to say that about a biblical passage. Is this passage really about Christians more than it is about Christ? But maybe the question it asks is, are Christians allowed to be ethnocentric, centered on their own ethnicity and expecting everybody else to be centered on their own ethnicity as well? Are we Christians really convinced that all kinds of people can have an equal share in the salvation that Jesus brings, in the community that He creates, in the inheritance that He shares with all those who trust in Him, no matter what their color, culture, country, or class? Are we convinced of that? 
can anyone from anywhere get that inheritance, that eternal wealth transfer on the same basis, with the same footing, in the same way? Because the Bible contends that the most important redistribution of wealth that ever happened, or could happen, happened long before the West was ever won or lost. It happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus shared all that is His with all those who would ever entrust themselves to Him in repentance and faith. But to see that, we need to step outside our own time and into the world of Acts 11 so that we ourselves can be freshly convinced. So follow along in your own Bibles or in the Bible in the pew in front of you as I read out loud for us Acts 11, 1 through 30. We'll focus this morning mostly on verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and, expl- began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, and, uh, at the house in which we were, and sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year 
they met with a church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, at the very outset of the chapter, in verses 1 through 3, the Christian apostles and brothers living in Judea, the Jewish Christians, heard that the Gentiles had received God's word about Jesus in the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, for us today, we hope we would say, well, this is wonderful. Let's celebrate that. Let's send a team from our own church to encourage them. But sadly, here in verse 2, that's not quite how the Christians in Jerusalem saw it, at least not some of them. They were more concerned with what Peter with where Peter was when all this happened. They criticized him for eating with uncircumcised men. They've got a hang-up here, and it's ethnic. That word criticized, though, is significant. It's the same word the Holy Spirit used when he told Peter in chapter 10, verse 20, to accompany Cornelius' men without hesitation, making no distinction is the footnote in your ESV, without criticizing them for being Gentiles. Go with them, the Holy Spirit tells Peter, and don't make any distinction. Don't criticize them that they're Gentiles and you're a Jew and you shouldn't be traveling with them or eating with them or entering into their house or having them enter your house. Don't make any distinction. That's what the Holy Spirit said to him about the Gentiles. And so these Jewish Christians in chapter 11 are doing exactly what God's Spirit told Peter not to do. They're criticizing. They're making a distinction. They're criticizing Peter for obeying the Holy Spirit's command not to criticize the Gentiles for being Gentiles. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Shame on you. You can't do evangelism like that because that disobeys the ceremonial law. See, they're not rejoicing because Gentiles received the gospel. They're complaining because Peter broke Jewish protocol by sitting at a Gentile kitchen table. These Jewish Christians are not convinced that Gentiles can be welcomed into the New Covenant community without obeying the Old Covenant purity laws from Leviticus 11. So, in verse 4, Peter begins to explain it all to them, Luke says, in order, which is a callback to Luke's first volume, the very beginning, Luke 1.3, to write an orderly account. That's Luke's whole purpose. And here he gets to this pivotal, crucial, turning point moment in the gospel going to the Gentiles. And he uses that same phrase again to let you know, hey, I know what I'm talking about. This is still an orderly account, even though if you're a Jew, 
you think, no, 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 out of bounds, out of order. You can't go into a Jewish house or a, a Gentile house as a Jew and sit down at a kitchen table like that and eat whatever's put in front of you, whether it's clean or unclean. No, 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 that's out of order. And Luke says, no, it's not. It's just in order. It's just right. You're still getting an orderly account of how the gospel advanced across ethnic lines and how the church began to welcome Gentiles into the New Covenant community. To begin with, Peter was already staying in Joppa. Now, Luke doesn't repeat it, and maybe Peter didn't repeat it for the Jerusalem Christians, but the house where he was staying in Joppa was not exactly a Jewish apartment above a Jewish deli. It was an unclean house owned and operated by a tanner a leather worker. That's not kosher. God gives Peter a vision of unclean animals in a place used for skinning unclean animals. How fitting. And so Peter goes on to relate his dream. A square sheet comes down, four corners, comes down from heaven, no less. The source of the vision's authority is heaven, and it came all the way, right up in front of me. It came up literally until me, right there. I had a front row seat. I was not sitting in the cheap seats. I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm seeing this, and it uses three sight verbs in Greek. Staring right at it, I looked closely and saw. That's how Peter retells it. Hey, man, this was not peripheral. I wasn't like, oh, what did I see out of the corner of my eye? I'm looking right at it. It's right in front of my face. I know what I saw. Orderly account. There's no mistaking this. It had all sorts of clean and unclean animals on it, even reptiles and birds. Leviticus 11 listed at least 20 kinds of unclean reptiles and six kinds of unclean birds. That's why those categories are important. There was a lot of unclean stuff, unclean animals, on this sheet. And they made the clean animals unclean by contact with them. And I heard a voice saying to me in that vision, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. That voice told me, called me by name, and said, Kill one of these unclean animals, make yourself unclean by killing it, and then eat it and make yourself even more unclean. And that word for eat is the same root word for, that the Jewish Christians used against Peter. You ate with uncircumcised men. And here Peter's basically saying, yeah, but God told me in a dream I should eat, I should do just what you and I both had always disapproved. He told me to eat. He even tells them he was as skeptical seeing it then as they were hearing it now. Look, man, I'm just as Jewish as you are. I said, by no means, Lord, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. That word Peter uses for entering into my mouth is the same word that the Jewish Christians used to criticize Peter entering into an unclean house. He's using their language to describe his vision. And he's telling them that he felt in his own dream, just like they feel hearing him talk about it now. No way this, is, this cannot be okay. But the dream happened three times, and God told him, what God has made clean, you don't call common. As if that were not enough 
for that kind of vision to happen three times right in front of Peter's nose, just when God was telling Peter what God has made clean, don't call common, he says, right then, these three men from Caesarea arrived at the unclean house where Peter had the unclean vision, and the Spirit tells him to go with them, making no distinction. He's just retelling it. And there's that word again, making no distinction. Don't criticize, don't hold them at arm's length just because they're not Jewish. What's more, Peter didn't go alone. He had six of his Jewish Christian brothers from Joppa with him. So Peter's not doing this like some maverick missionary all by himself. He's got six Jewish brothers who can corroborate how all this went down, and they did it with him. So the ten of them, six brothers, three messengers from Caesarea, and Peter himself go into Cornelius' house. Don't miss that in verse 12. We, we went into the man's house. This is not just Peter. He said, look, man, if, if I'm guilty, so are your own Jewish Christian brothers who went right in there with me. Peter's Jewish Christian brothers didn't wait outside on the front porch of Cornelius' house wringing their hands over Jewish ceremonial protocol. They went in with him. So if Peter's implicated, so are they. And they're the very kinds of Peter, people that are criticizing Peter. Circumcised believers. Your own brothers were with me in Cornelius' house. We went in. Well, when they get to Cornelius' house, Peter says, you are not going to believe what he told us. He told us how he himself had actually seen an angel standing in his house. Don't let that one slip your notice. Peter was not the first one to be okay going into a Gentile house. An angel from heaven beat him to it. It's clean enough for an angel. And that angel told Cornelius they were coming. Even mentioned Peter by name and told Cornelius, he, Peter, will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And that's the message Peter preached to them in his house sermon from chapter 10, verses 34 to 43 about Jesus Christ, Lord of all, announced by John the Baptist, anointed by the Holy Spirit to work miracles, witnessed by the apostles, crucified by the Jews in Jerusalem, raised from the dead by God himself, seen by God's chosen witnesses, testified as the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. All of that predicted by all the prophets that everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter goes on to relate to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that to his own surprise, as he started preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Just like he fell on the Jewish believers at Pentecost in Acts 2. I could hardly believe it myself, he says. And that's when Peter remembered Jesus saying in Acts 1.5, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And right then, as the Holy Spirit's coming on the Gentiles... Peter seems to be remembering the you there was far more plural than he thought. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not just you Jews, but all of you who believe in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. You. Oh. That counts for them too. Yeah, that counts for the Gentiles too. That's what Jesus meant. Well, that sealed the deal for Peter. This was the Gentile Pentecost. Peter had a dream, heard it interpreted, heard a guiding word from the Spirit, 
say, follow these unclean men. He follows them to hear that their own boss had a dream about Peter coming to preach a saving message to them. Peter preaches that message. The Spirit falls on them. They praise God in foreign tongues, just like the Jewish believers did at Pentecost. And God brings Acts 1-5 to Peter as if to say, yeah, this is what Jesus was saying all along. That's what he meant right here. So Peter throws up his hands at the end of his testimony to his fellow Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, verse 17, and says, well, what else could I do? I mean, you tell me, what was I supposed to do in that moment? God gave the Gentiles their own Pentecost. I had no power or right to veto the Spirit's outpouring, even as an apostle myself. Maybe the import of that rhetoric and that rhetorical question is, so who are you to stand in God's way? Like, I couldn't stand in God's way do you think you're going to stand it? Do you want to stand in God's way? Do you want to raise an objection to what God just did? I mean, I'm as Jewish as you guys, but I know as well as you do, you don't stand in God's way when he does something like that and then attest to it with dreams and visions and voices from the Holy Spirit. Well, in verse 18, after Peter ends with his rhetorical question, who is I that I could stand in God's way, the silence is deafening. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall in that room? What? Are they going to th- I mean, that's something. You could hear a pin drop. They're looking around at each other, and as it dawns on them, they glorified God. They glorified God. That's what we wanted them to say at the beginning. But they needed convincing And once they were convinced, look at how they put it. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The Gentiles must have repented, trusted in Jesus, just like we did, because God gave them the Spirit, just like He gave us the Spirit. And that's the biblical equivalent of, well, there you have it. There it is. I love the NAS, the New American Standard. I, I mean, they're so... Literal, but here it's a little bit interpretive. <laughs> they go, this is the actual translation of the NAS. Well then. <laughs> I mean, that's how it is in the NAS. Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Well then, huh, what do you know? Who'd have thunk it? Didn't see that coming. I guess God just did it. And I suppose we'd better get on board. And in a fitting conclusion, look how these circumcised Christians have changed their tune. In verse 3, they began by saying, you ate with uncircumcised men. And now they're saying something different. They're singing a different tune. God has granted the Gentiles repentance. They go from doubting to affirming, they are convinced. And they needed to be. They needed to be. I think the point of that part is that churches, churches like ours, Christians like you and me, churches must realize and embrace the international scope of God's saving mission. We're not getting a pass on this. Churches must realize 
and embrace the international scope of God's saving mission. Luke has already told us about Peter's vision in chapter 10. So when you're reading this in your quiet time, you get to chapter 11 and you're like, I thought I already read this. And you might be like, Luke's not a really very good writer because he's so repetitive. I'm skipping this part. No, there's a reason that he repeated it. Repetition is the mother of all learning. Repetition is the mother of all learning. So why did he repeat it? He tells us about Peter telling the church in Jerusalem about the vision that he already told us about. The second relating of the vision is to convince not Peter, but the church. This is about converting the whole church, as it were, to God's international, intercultural, trans-ethnic mission of saving the Gentiles from the penalty and power of their sins through the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We Christians ourselves have to be convinced against our own ethnocentric mentality, against our own self-centered, self-protective, self-justifying cynicism, that God is already saving a people who don't look or live or eat like us, who don't sound or talk or act like us on the outside. The vision God gave Peter, the angel who appeared to Cornelius, and the spirit Jesus poured out on the Gentiles at this Gentile Pentecost did not merely happen to convince Peter, and it did not happen merely to convince Cornelius or even merely to convince the circumcised Christians in the church back in Jerusalem. This all happened, and it was recorded, and preserved for 2,000 years, and translated into your native tongue in order to convince you and me. That's why all the miracles happen. That's why they're all recorded, to convince you and me today, not just them back then. We who sit here in these pews this morning need to be convinced afresh that God's saving mission is to give repentance to sinners of every color, from every country, in every culture, and every class. You and I need to be convinced of that point from Acts 11 right now so that this church flourishes as God intended and so that the gospel crosses ethnic boundaries as a result of our preaching and our evangelism and our discipleship, just like it did back then. We need God's Spirit to do the work in the hearts of those who hear us. Now, there are some gospel implications to this. Notice there in verse 18, God has given repentance to the Gentiles. Read it again. God has given repentance to the Gentiles. Repentance is a God-given gift for Gentiles from God, just like it was, come to think of it, for the Jews themselves in chapter 531, when Peter said, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance 
to Israel. And now here in verse 18 of chapter 11, God has given repentance to the Gentiles. What happened at the Gentile Pentecost in Acts 10 proved that God was not just gathering himself a people from among the Jews. He's gathering for himself a people from the Gentiles. But to do that, he has to give repentance as a gift to save Gentiles, just as he had to give the gift to the Jews. Now, it's true, repentance is a duty. It is a duty. You should repent. You are commanded to repent. You must repent. You are responsible to repent. You should turn away from your sins. You should trust in Christ. You are obligated to do that. God commands it. Jesus commands it. Jesus himself preached, repent, imperative, command, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You, should, you are commanded to repent because the authority of God's kingdom has come to earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when the Jews were cut to the quick by Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 and asked Peter, what must we do? The same Peter who preached chapter 11 preached Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a duty. Peter knows it. And yet, Peter also knows that repentance is a duty that we are unable to carry out in our flesh. It's a command we are too dead to obey in the flesh. Unless God gives what he requires. And praise his name, God gives us the gift of the repentance he requires of us as a command. He gives the repentance he requires. So I want you to notice something here. Obligation does not imply ability. Obligation does not imply ability. God has every right to command us to do something, to repent, that we in our own voluntary slavery to sin have disabled ourselves from being able to do. We are still obligated to repent even though we are unable to repent. It's just like if you had a drug addict for a friend you said, man, you, you have got to stop shooting up. Can your friend obey that? No, he's an addict. He can't. He's disabled himself from doing that. Is he still obligated? Yes. That's our situation before God. My slavery to my sin is my fault. It's not society's fault. It's my fault. And I'm still obligated to live in the way that God designed me and created me to live. And I'm not able to do that. And I need the gift of repentance by God's goodness. And God is so good that He gives to us by grace the very repentance He requires of us by law. He awakens us from the dead, gives us new life, he turns us, He gives us a new heart to want to repent and gives us not just a possibility or even the ability to repent that we might or might not use at our leisure, but He gives the repentance itself. 
Otherwise, we would not repent, and neither would anyone else to whom we speak the gospel. So notice this as well. The gift of repentance is not what makes evangelism unnecessary. We should not go away from this thinking, well, if repentance is a gift, then why should I even be commanded to do evangelism because God has to give it? No, no, no. It's the opposite. It's what makes evangelism possible. The gift of repentance is what makes evangelism possible, hopeful, and successful. God is already giving repentance as a gift to sinners of every color, country, culture, and class. He's already committed to doing that. That's why you can and should go out and speak the gospel to your non-believing friends. Because God is committed to giving repentance to people who hear His gospel. So when we do evangelism, that should be the hope and prayer in the back of our minds. God, give this person who needs to be saved your gift of repentance as I speak the gospel of Jesus to them. Make this evangelistic conversation like the one Peter had with Cornelius. Don't even let me finish speaking without giving them repentance and filling them with your Holy Spirit. Because I know you're committed to doing that because I know that's how you want to glorify yourself. That's how you want your glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So do it. Weak as I am, through my weak, puny evangelism, through my fear and timidity and doubt, do it. Because if you don't, nothing's going to happen. This also has implications for our mindset as a church. We have to reject a provincial mindset that says that all that should matter to us is me and mine my wife, my kids, maybe my neighborhood, my little province, my little neck of the woods. That's a provincial mentality. Now, we do need to be concerned about our children, about Elgin, about the Fox Valley. We do need to be praying that God will build us up in this local church in particular, but that's only the beginning because the reason we should pray for God to build us up is so that our reach for the gospel can expand throughout Elgin, throughout Chicagoland, throughout America, and around the world. Why? To build a name for ourselves? No, to build a name for Jesus. Because the scope of God's saving mission is not merely local or provincial. It's global. So when we pray for this church to be strengthened, we're praying that the testimony of this church would grow and brighten, that we would be an encouragement and a strengthening influence to other churches who either need to change or need to grow in what they're already doing. And we're also praying that we would have more wisdom, more people, more resources to give away and to share with other local churches here and with other local churches elsewhere and with churches and church leaders all over the world. So let's reject a merely provincial mindset that's limited only to the gospel concerns of our little neck of the woods, our province. Let's embrace and embody and sponsor a global mindset, a global perspective, a global vision that sees God's inter-ethnic purposes for His glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Of course, this passage also has pulpit implications. He will speak to you a message by which you and your whole household will be saved, the angel says to Cornelius. He will speak to you a message by which you and your whole household will be saved. Christian 
preaching must announce the Christian gospel. A pastor once told me, to my confusion, you can preach Christian sermons without mentioning Jesus' name. What? A better pastor said, why would you want to do that? We want people to be able to be saved from hearing any sermon that's preached in our pulpits. People are saved by the message spoken. The gospel is what saves people. Cornelius was not saved because Peter was extra nice to him. Cornelius was saved because Peter spoke the saving message to him. I'm sure Peter was nice, but there was nothing saving about Peter himself. What is saving is the message Peter spoke. The message saves. The gospel saves because Jesus saves. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing. Not by seeing, not by feeling. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, not by the works of men, not by how nice you are, even though I don't want you to be mean. Hearing comes by the word of God. What word? What word? The word of his gospel about Jesus. It's the good news that though God is our holy creator and our righteous judge, that we sinned and rebelled against his law and rejected his love, we drew down his wrath, which could only rightly send us to hell. He sent his eternal son, Jesus, to live the sinless life we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve, to die under God's curse. And he rose from the dead to vindicate his righteousness and to justify us. And if we turn away from our sins and self-reliance before God, if we repent and trust in Christ, then we can be reconciled to the God we offended and rebelled against. Now we know but the world doesn't necessarily want to hear that message. In fact, the world will probably listen to almost any other message than that one. But the Bible told us that too. The Apostle Paul said, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So what do we preach? Signs and wisdom? That's not what Paul preached, even though he could have given them plenty of signs as an apostle. The Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1. It's the message that saves, no matter what the culture wants to hear or not hear. And Christian, this goes for your own personal evangelism as well. Announce and explain the gospel clearly. Have that little outline in your mind. God, man, Christ, response. Keep that outline in your mind. God, man, Christ, response. You'll always be ready to speak the gospel to anyone who needs to hear it. People are not going to be saved just because you're extra nice to them or because you're always smiling or because you don't complain about your boss like they do or because your kid's st still in the grocery cart and hug you in public. 
Nobody's going to get saved because of that. Even though I want your kids to hug you in public. That's nice. I like to see that. But people will get saved because you are patient to explain the gospel to them over time. And you're patient to tell them how to respond to it with repentance and faith and what that's going to mean for them in their lives. Look to at verses 19 to 26. It's those scattered from Jerusalem in Stephen's persecution who preach not only to Jews, but also to Greeks, Hellenists, non-Jews. Regular Christians, church, regular Christians just like you that have jobs just like you, families just like you, obligations just like you, problems, complications just like you, sorrows just like you, And guess what? They speak the gospel wherever they go. And that is how the church grew. Because people like you spoke the gospel to other people. And guess what? In verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. It didn't matter that they didn't earn their living from the gospel. The hand of the Lord was with them. Joe Lunchpail Christian, the hand of the Lord was with him. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Christian, that can be you. That can be our church. That can be the character of our congregation. You can and should do evangelism wherever you go. Talk with others about the Christ you say is so important to you. The social and moral situation back then was just as bad as it, was, it is now. Maybe it was worse. But regular Christians preached the Lord Jesus. The Lord was with them. Many believed. In verse 24, many were added to the Lord. And that church, the church in Antioch, becomes in chapter 13 the sending church for Paul and Barnabas, no less. Peter didn't plant the church in Antioch. Joe Lunchpail did. And then they send Barnabas to check it out And he's like, yeah, they got it going on. They planted a church. Way to go. Joe Lunchpail Christian, planting churches. Think about this. The church in Antioch, evangelized and planted, not by Peter or John or James, but by normal Christians like you, becomes the sending church for the Apostle Paul. Of course, there's obvious social implications here. The gospel and the gospel alone conquers our ethnic suspicions and class resentments. No ethnicity is superior or inferior to any other ethnicity in how we stand related to God. Every ethnicity is equally sinful before God. But no ethnicity is beyond God's saving reach in Christ. The gospel does not require any of us to repent of our ethnicity. We retain our ethnicity. Jews are still Jews. Greeks are still Greeks. Greeks don't have to become 
Jews to enter into the church. Ethnicity still exists as a reality of cultural differences, but to identify our ethnicity as inseparable from our shared sins as an ethnicity or pet resentments as an ethnicity, that is sin that must be repented. I'm not allowed to stay like my ethnicity in the sins that mark the people who share my ethnicity. I got to repent of those too. I stay who I am in my ethnicity except for the sins that mark people like me. Ethnic injustices do exist in the world, in America, even in our own hearts here in this room. Ethnic prejudices do exist, even in churches. We should not trivialize or ignore those. But neither should we seek to magnify or manipulate them in order to score political points or gain a constituency. That's wrong. Here in Acts 11, our ethnic resentments are so deeply seated that they took the death of Jesus and then even more special revelation like dreams and visions to get rid of them. You realize that's what's going on? But look here in Acts 10 and 11 at how quickly and how completely the gospel itself conquers ethnic prejudices and social resentments between men as different as Peter was from Cornelius. It is not the gospel of forgiveness in Christ through faith and repentance that divides. The gospel doesn't divide. Gospel doctrine does not divide. It is loyalty to our own sin and sense of either superiority or eternal grievance that divides. It's defensiveness about our own sin and about our sinful responses to other people's sins against us, that divides. That's what identity politics is playing on. But conversion as a Christian is the time when we lay down our defensiveness about our ethnic resentments, and the church is the place where we unite together with people of other ethnicities to seek our common ground in our common faith in the Lord of all, Christ Jesus. Friends, the church is the institution Jesus is building to show the world that no matter what sins have passed between us as ethnicities, His blood can atone for our sins against Him and against each other. The gospel is where we take responsibility for our own personal sins by admitting them, turning from them, and turning to Jesus for atonement and forgiveness. We lay down our defensiveness. Now, we cannot confess and repent of other people's sins in their place, but we can confess and repent of our own sins. We can run to Jesus to put them under the flow of His cleansing blood, and when we encourage and call others to do the same, we welcome them to the same fountain where we have washed and we tell them, we encourage them, you can be just as clean as Jesus made us. And that's where we find each other. By coming to Jesus together 
as the same cleansing fountain to cleanse our sins. So let's live generously in giving ourselves to gospel friendships that cross ethnic boundaries in the local church. And when our friends who look different from us want to join this church, we should welcome ethnic diversity as God gives it among our number. I know the word diversity is overused to the point of feeling manipulative, even judgy. But there is still a right-headed, gospel-driven, biblical diversity that is beautiful when you see it at work in a local church like this one. People of all colors, countries, cultures coming together for the reading, preaching, praying, singing of God's Word and seeing it in baptism in the Lord's Supper, that is beautiful. And Why does it happen? Because to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ himself is the power and wisdom of God, and we share that. So when you preach the Christ of the Bible, the Christ of the apostles, the Christ whom Peter and Paul preached, you're going to get people who are called from other colors and cultures who love the Christ who first loved them. Because the gospel crosses ethnic boundaries and appeals to all of the cult, not just the ones who look like you. And if we have Christ in common, the rest is about loving one another through the remaining differences. There's also implications for Catholicity here. The apostles, verse 1, and the brothers in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Don't read over that too quickly. They heard. We see this again and again throughout the New Testament. The gospel creates not simply atomistic, unrelated, independent churches as dots on a landscape that have no lines connecting them. It creates a network of congregations who care about each other and Christ's work in and through each other. The apostles want local churches in different parts of the world to know each other, to care for each other, and to celebrate the progress of the gospel through each other. So we as a congregation, Grace Covenant Baptist Church, should want to grow in initiating, maintaining, and expanding relationships with other congregations all over the world. That is what we might call evangelical Catholicity. It's Catholicity with a little c. Catholicity is from the Greek word katholos, meaning complete, whole, entire. So when we say Catholicity, we don't mean Roman Catholic. We mean the church universal, the whole church across space and time that believes the good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone, found in Scripture alone. We want to seek out relationships with those kind of churches committed to that kind of doctrine and that kind of practice and partner with them to plant more of those kinds of churches. Which leads us to our next implication, which is missions. We should care about missions and global church planting increasingly. We should care to know about it, participate in it, support it, be informed, be useful, be joyful about it. We should want our gospel reach to extend to different parts of Chicagoland, to different parts of Illinois, America, the world, different countries, ethnicities, cultures. We should want people in other parts of the world to have a reason to thank God for our faithfulness in speaking the gospel and training pastors who will plant healthy churches in other parts of the world. 
I hope, I trust that you're grateful that this church exists in Elgin. But guess what? There's a ton of places all over, just all over Chicagoland where people think, man, I would have to drive 45 minutes to get to a church like that. I wish that church were five minutes away, and it's not. Well, what are we going to do about that? We've got to do something. We should want to do our part as a church in fulfilling the Great Commission. Look at verse 22 in Acts 11. The Christians traveling to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch do evangelism, and the word of their evangelistic work gets back to the church in Jerusalem. And what does the church in Jerusalem do? They send Barnabas to Antioch to check it out in verse 22. He's elated. He encourages them, son of encouragement as he is. He sends for Saul. And notice, they don't just send anybody, right? The Jerusalem church doesn't hear about the work in Antioch and, and, and be like, okay, well, who's our least useful guy? Who can we get along without easiest? Who do we want to get rid of? Let's send him. No, they send Barnabas, man. They send their best guy. They send their encourager. They send the guy they're probably going to miss the most. And he stays for a long time. He stays away. And then he travels all over the world. So much for Barnabas being kept in Jerusalem for the encouragement of everybody else in Jerusalem. But that's a godly congregation sharing one of their best guys with the rest of the church and trusting God, yeah, we'll get another Barnabas sometime. Let him go. Antioch needs him more than we do. Hmm? Congregation, you got to start thinking like that. And because that happens, disciples in Antioch get a reputation for being Christians, little Christs. Because Barnabas asks for Saul. Barnabas gets sent by the Jerusalem church. They edify the church in Antioch. And very quickly, the disciples get a reputation for being little Christs. Y'all are just like him. Guys, we want to be a Jerusalem church sharing our best people with new churches by sending them out to stabilize those fledgling congregations. We're not just here for us. We're here for others in the world who need healthy churches in their part of the world. So, this is going to have financial budget implications. Let's give generously to local and international church planting. Let's share a vision for creating a more visible local church presence here in Elgin. Not simply for its own sake, but where we can show off the reconciling grace and power of the gospel across our own ethnicities. Elgin is a city in the suburbs. That's the whole tagline for Elgin, the city in the suburbs. It needs to be an ethnically diverse gospel community in this church, shaped by the doctrines of grace, instructed by Scripture, ruled by King Jesus, disciplined in obeying Scripture, and loving one another across our differences. Elgin needs that kind of church. It needs us to be that.
Chicagoland needs that. America needs it. The world needs it. Giving money to the ministry of the local church and its missions endeavors is an opportunity to invest in kingdom priorities. It's an opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. It's an opportunity to show the world how valuable Jesus is to you, to us. It's a chance to prove that we are faithful in putting a premium on the spread of the gospel. It's an opportunity to show that Jesus is worth the risk of putting our money where our mouth is. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. And kingdom investments pay eternal dividends. This is why we just started supporting the Association for Christian Mission and Evangelism, somewhat lamely known by its acronym ACME. Yikes. But we're giving 2% of our church budget to this association because to become a participating member, every church has to be the very kind of church we already are. Committed to reformed soteriology, baptistic practice, congregational government, complementarianism, a statement of faith like ours, a church covenant like ours, sound in a biblical sexual ethic. It's not, not much now, but it's a beginner's step in partnering together financially in missions with other churches we know we can trust who will work together in planting churches we would want to attend ourselves in other parts of the world. Having said all that about the global perspective of God's gospel, I want us to draw some baptism implications from our text here as we close. There are implications here for how we think about baptism. And there's a reason we have the name Baptist in our church name. We find in Acts 11, this is really just an appendix to the sermon, but I think we need it. We find in Acts 11 at least five textual arguments for credo-baptism, believer's baptism, baptism of believers only, only people who already believe in Jesus should be baptized as Christians, against paedo-baptism or infant baptism, baptizing the infants of Christians as in Presbyterianism. So first textual argument for credo-baptism from Acts 11. It's the message that saves in verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Well, that means to be saved, you have to hear, understand, and respond to that message. It's the message that saves you. You've got to hear that. You've got to understand the message. Infants can't do that. Second, the Spirit is poured out on all these people before they are water baptized. Chapter 10, verse 46, it's clear that these people speak in tongues as a result of the Spirit being poured out on them. And here it's said that this happened to them just as it happened to the Jews in Acts 2. But that's the experience that clarifies that they should be the subject of baptism. At least in this instance, it's faith, repentance, and here even speaking in tongues. Infants can't do any of that. I don't think we can, we can appeal to this passage and say infants should be baptized based on the dynamics here. Third, Peter says that the Spirit was poured out and they baptized at the same time. They were baptized at the same time the Jews got the Spirit when they believed when they believed. Again, infants can't do that. 
these spirit-filled, baptized believers repented. Infants can't do that. And fifth, the argument that the parents or heads of households believed here as a proxy or representative of their children, that's just an argument from silence. We don't know that there were even infants in these households. Now, that doesn't mean, so that may sound like, mm, that's kind of strong. I'm not sure I'm that much of a Baptist. Okay. What I'm not saying in any of those arguments is that young, 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 young children can't be saved. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we don't have good reason from a passage like this to believe that they were baptized. End parenthesis. The ultimate ethnic equality cannot be legislated or redistributed into reality. It can only be realized in the gospel because only the gospel tells us that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are all Abraham's offspring. You're all equally spiritually Jewish. True Israel. Equal heirs according to the same promise of the same God. And if we are convinced of this, then that conviction should show up in our evangelism, our disciple-making, our congregational life, and our priorities as Christians. I wonder now, are you convinced? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we all too often don't even realize that we think in a way that is very self-centered, expects other people to think and talk and look and eat and dress just like we do. Well, these kinds of thoughts make us sometimes uncomfortable, but we know that you are doing something that transcends our preferences and the culture of our own origins. So we pray, would you widen our hearts to welcome people from every color, country, culture, and class who will make their creed Jesus is Lord of all. We pray that by your grace, this church and others like it would look more and more like the community that you designed, where people of every tribe, tongue, and nation would come and hear your gospel preached and prayed, sung and read, and would believe the same things about your Son, Christ Jesus, about how you are gathering a people for yourself. We pray that Elgin and Chicagoland and the world would be able to look at this church and others like it and be able to call us Christians. That they would know 
that we follow Jesus because of the way we love one another, even across our ethnic differences. Make us faithful to these things. Make us faithful to your word and to your people, no matter what they look like. For Jesus' sake, amen.